Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. And welcome to another episode of IRC Inwood Book Club. We have been at this a while and we're still here. How exciting, Mike. Yes, well, I've got two things to say. The sharp-eyed people that view this show will notice I've got a gilet on. That's because on the 31st of March, it decided to snow like mad in Leeds. Unbelievable today. Ridiculous. Secondarily, I hate this phrase, and I'm only saying it to wind Johnny up, really. But we're going to have to be concise today because I've got a hard stop at 5.45. A hard stop. You're important, Mike. You're, you're important. <laughs> I really hate it when people say, you know, when, clients, not, when people, clients say no, it to me, they think, oh, whatever. No, people don't have hard stops. They are on hard stops. A hard stop is something upon which people reside, not something that people possess. Ah, well, I'm on a hard stop then. That you can tell how often I've said it. So I don't know where we got up to in this book, Johnny. What, what, I can't remember where we got up to. Page 57. We're, we're, we're on page 57. Now, I've decided I'm going to do a slightly different way of going through the show today. I, I've got the book in front of me on the Kindle for Mac. What, at, what chapter is that? I've also got chapter four. Goals. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So what are you going to do differently then? So... Well, what I'm doing is I'm working off notes I've written rather than just flicking through the book. I just thought that might give me a little bit more flow, like flow. See how I did that? So flow, for those of you who don't listen, is where you're in the state of being productive. Yeah. So page 59 is the first interesting bit in this chapter where he talks about what he calls high, hard goals, which are the goals along the way to what he calls your massive transformative purpose. What do you reckon to all this goals stuff, Mike? You, you know full well, Johnny, I'm banging to goals. So that up there on that bit of wall, Matt, you know, if looking, Johnny, up there on that bit of wall. I am looking. I'm just looking that, for something that I've got on goals as well. There is a drawing that I have done, and I'm a terrible artist, appalling, couldn't be worse, of the goals that I have for this quarter. Now, I was interested about the way... Bre- Personal goals... Uh, mixed work goals, personal goals. There's um, things I want to buy. There's stuff I'm targeting on, like my, you know, IRC, down to very basic things like number of send outs a week. There is motivation. There you go. Yeah, there is motivational stuff. Uh, so stuff that motivates me. So one example of that is I've drawn a picture of me, my wife, and two kids into a sunset to depict holidays. Now it's a terrible picture, um, but it's a picture. Yeah. Um, and so I'm banging into goals. And actually, to summarise, you know, sort of what, what what this guy's on about, get a big goal and break it into sub-goals. I completely agree with that. Yeah. And also, what I underlined here was he put, this also means that these goals are my first filter. If a project comes my way, if it doesn't advance these three missions, it's not for me. And I thought it was quite interesting, really, and how that ties into goals. I thought, fair play. I actually quite like that. I think so, too. I, I'll tell you what would be fascinating I've drawn this out. It's got on it, it says, it's basically like a vision board. It's got nine handicap on it, 100 kg squat, 200 kg deadlift. It says health all over it. Health, 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 health. There's some stuff about money goals on it. Uh, There's stuff about it. There's like loads of bits where it says 5X inward, 5X inward, 5X inward. And there's like music stuff on it that I want to achieve. 
I'd be interested to know how many people have got shit like that. Well, I, I'm going, you know, I know, you know, I like this man, and I'm friends with him. He's a man that you know, who I can remember probably fourteen years ago, something like that. Back in the days where you took out a leather folder with a notebook in it to write your notes in, out of his leather folder, this is how long ago it was, right? Uh, fell a clipping from the Yorkshire Post property page, and it was a picture of a house that he wanted to buy. Oh, really? When he'd grown his business and sold it. You know the man I'm talking about? Right. You do know him well. Fair play. Golfer. Right. Uh, right. You know him, yeah, you know I him definitely well. know him, yeah. Yeah. And out of it fell this clipping. And he looked at me a bit embarrassed. And I said, what's that? And he goes, this is every time I open my notebook, I see it. And he said, well, I'm so opposite people. And I'm about to pitch to them. He, you know, he was a startup in the security market. He said, I have that in mind. Lo and behold, he bought that house. He bought that house. And I thought, wow. you think, you know, fair play. Yeah, fair play. He bought that house. He lives in that house now, mortgage-free. He's whacked a massive extension on it. He bought that house. That's what he did. Fair play. I like that. But that's because he's a top guy, isn't he? He's a top guy. And a nice man. Well, that's the point that the book's making. That's the book's the point Stephen Kotler's making is that goal has sent him into flow. Yeah. It's just pulled him along. Not some quarterly sales target with some sales leader asking what your cadence is. That's just bigger shit, isn't it? That's massive transformative purpose broken into several separate sub-goals. If you believe it and live by it. You know, a lot of people have goals to lose weight, but actually a lot of them don't lose weight because it's not a goal that's set in stone in their mind. And actually, you know, talking about setting stone in their mind, this guy, Stephen, whatever his name is, talks about making goals public. Well, he talks about not doing so. He says you keep them to yourself. Now, I was always taught that you tell everybody about your goal. Oh, that's right. I've put surprised by that here. Yeah, it's really surprised me that I was always told you tell people your goals, you make them really public so that you, you end up being held to account in the court of public opinion for your actions against your goal. But actually, what he's saying is, no, you don't do that. It's between you and the vision board. Now, I've got to say, you know, um, I, I don't publicly share my goals, but every now and then, like my mates, whatever, will come into my office to look at some computer stuff or whatever, and it's very clearly on the wall. If they ask me, I'll tell them about it. But I wouldn't ever go out and, I'd like this man, as an example, the clip that fell out of his, uh, his folder, he was almost a little embarrassed by it, by me having seen it. And then I said, this damn into goals and stuff. That was between him and his wife and his kids and his maker, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My daughter's really big on that. She has very similar stuff, you know, about where she wants to be, pictures of performances, roles she wants to play in a career, all that stuff. I hope it works for her. Well, I was going to move on to actually my, so both my daughters do taekwondo. They're both great at it and all the rest of it. What taekwondo does brilliantly is you get trained by somebody who's got a black belt. Right. And then you take incremental steps towards your black belt, yellow tag, yellow belt, green tag, green belt, right. blue tag, blue belt, etc. And I think that uh, the formalization, you know, of, of particularly in martial arts, I think that is like a public goal, isn't it? Of course it is. To reach a point of acclaim. And, and actually, it's done both my kids the world of good. And now both of them are quite goal orientated without even really realizing it. And they're used to breaking down their goals into little pieces. You've just grooved them into it without them realising. I, I haven't. The system has. And I didn't enter them into Taekwondo to do that. 
I entered them into the system because they're both girls and I want them to be able to fight off some horrible boy in the 15. But actually, Taekwondo has had a lot more benefit than that. <laughs> That did, yeah. That's cool. I think this has been a really interesting chapter, actually, this one on goals. And then he talks about chapter five. He talks about grit. Now, I like this. I think, interestingly, we're doing a load of work with a company at the moment, uh, and they've got us pretty busy. We were just talking about them beforehand, that they might get their asses kicked on a second interview by another client of yours that's moving a bit more dynamically and aggressively. Um, That notwithstanding, they talk a lot, every job spec they've got, on the personal attributes, says first personal attribute on the spec is grit. And how do they interview against that, Jonathan? Badly. Isn't that interesting? But isn't that an interesting point? Yeah. It's a really important thing to them. They don't interview against it. Yeah. I'm hiring for grit. I'm looking for gritty people. How do you know they're gritty? Yeah, that's a separate conversation. But I'm with you on the grit thing. I actually think personally I've got a lot of it. You're very gritty. I think in many respects that's your superpower. I've got a will of iron. We're all Avengers, aren't we? So if we were, the, if me and you were Avengers, right? Mm. Price's superpower is grit. Just won't be fucking beaten. So pardon my language. Just won't be beaten. Mine is sort of I'm a bit creative and I come up with wacky ideas. Mm. You know, as, like a, as a set of Avengers, that's what we'd all be, wouldn't we? Right. Mm, mm, mm. But yours is grit. You you are literally you. Were, I, I wouldn't want to fight you, Pricey, because I know you. You would only lie down when I'd actually knocked you unconscious, which would be unlikely. Yeah, I'm into jujitsu, and uh, I did a competition. I got my head cut clean open. Right. And they go, "All oh, right, is that you out?" I said, "No." I said, "No." Categorically not. No. I need to be bandaged up. Yeah. Yeah. I, everyone calls me Mister Bump now because the bandage on my head was so big. <laughs> you, you, but I know that that's what you'd be like. You'd be like, yeah, I'll, uh, th- this fight's over when actually uh, I'm dead. Yeah, and I think a lot of salespeople, it's interesting about your client, a lot of salespeople don't necessarily have that. But also in this chapter, he talks about passion has been a component of grit. He said, pattern matters in a discussion of grit because there's no other way for you to persevere years on end. Now, I don't actually agree with that, actually. Uh, no, I'll tell you what I wrote. I wrote, sometimes grit isn't a choice. Correct. You know, 2008, 2009, me and you sat in that little room with that whiteboard. We weren't gritty. Just Grit just wasn't an option. It was be gritty or lose your house. Well, we weren't passionate. We, had, we only had grit. Just that's it. It was just grit. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was pure grit. You know, I might think you're grittier than me. I'll tell you now, we were both gritty as hell. I completely agree. And I'll tell you now, and this is gonna this is an interesting thing. I think there could be until things are resolved in the Ukraine, we could have six months, a year of some really rough times, I think, in the next year or two. And it will be very interesting to see. I mean, I'll be a bit gutted about it because I'm quite happy with the market as it is, but it will be interesting to see how that affects this generation. Because when it happened in 2008. There were a lot of guys who were still, there were still plenty of remnants of the 80s gang knocking around, weren't there? And the dot-com burst of 2001 as well. Yeah. Yeah, loads of people who'd ridden it through. And so there were plenty of hard 80s guys who'd grown up in hard, very tough sales environments. Now, I think a tough year could be cataclysmic. We haven't seen a tough year in the IT industry you know, du- during the whole Brexit thing, there was a bit of a bump after Brexit, but not a massive one. It was like two months. Nope. 
of tough. There was nobody skipped a beat, really. There was three weeks of tough at the start of the pandemic, but the tr- last two time when it was hard was two thousand eight. That's fourteen years ago. So if you're a graduate and you graduated at twenty one and you're thirty five, which is a you know proper grown up age, isn't it? Thirty five, you know, you're married, mortgage, kids, all that. You've not seen a hard time. No. And you're a fully grown-ass adult sales professional now with a fully grown-ass adult sales job with a big fat basic. And, and I think that will be really interesting to see who's got the grit. He, I wrote here that the energy needed to push through years of tough tasks is the quote, he, is what he defines it as, the intersection of passion and perseverance. And then he says, go on, Mike, you were going to say something. Mike. Well, I underlined a sentence for you, Johnny. Quite often, passion feels like frustration on the inside and looks like obsession from the outside. Yeah, I like that. I thought that was an absolutely top draw uh, line in it. Really did. thought this chapter was excellent, actually. uh, Very interesting, actually. And the other thing I really like, page 66, he talks about how dopamine, every time you do something really hard, you get dopamine from it. And he said, doing hard stuff is actually very addictive in the end. Of course it is. Why are people into Ironman? Doing that, that little bit... Being hard, the the uh, I was uh, I always used to, uh, one of my favourite quotes is the Joss Naylor quote, the legendary fell runner. He always says, "Being hard is the hard bit." Yeah, nice quote. You know, yeah, I like it. Then he talks about uh, gratitude. What do you make call this gratitude stuff? Do you do gratitude in the mornings? No, I don't. But my thirteen-year-old daughter has a gratitude book, right? And she writes in it every day. I don't make her write in it. One of her mates bought it for her. It was nothing to do with me. Right. Uh, he says, negative thinking leads to increased stress and crushes creativity. There's a strong link between gratitude and flow. Optimism and confidence is produced by gratitude because lower anxiety makes us fear less fearful of stretching ourselves and doing creative, sort of interesting, smart stuff. I have tried gratitude journaling and... I'm guilty of not having been gritty enough with it <laughs> and sticking to it, really. It's an interesting practice. If you do it, then combine it with your meditation, you do sort of feel a bit better about life. Well, isn't it funny? My daughter has filled it in every single day since she got it. Of course she has, because she's a price. She's a price of from 4000 Well, that's the point. Grit with gratitude works. Gratitude on its own doesn't necessarily work. The grit to have gratitude daily, that daily practice of getting up, writing in your journal, things I'm grateful for in my life. That's going to work. I'm going to get back into that shit. I've never read her gratitude journal. I hope I mentioned it on most days. So the next bit is is about self-talk. Yeah. If you want to control your thoughts, positive self-talk is the place to start. There are only two kinds of thoughts, explains Michael Jouvet, like Ricky Jouvet. Those that constrict us or those that expand us. Negative thoughts constrict, positive thoughts expand. I just don't agree with that. I think there's got to be a sense of realism. Yeah. There's got to be a point at which you said, I was bad at that and I need to know why. I really do. Yeah, and I think there's got to be a time where you give yourself a hard word. There's got to be a time where you give yourself bollocking. Yeah, where you say, you're a loser. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Now, this guy wouldn't let yourself let, let you call yourself a loser. Well, he, he also talks about your inner voice, doesn't he? Mm. Well, he goes, the, the next page he goes, and this is about gratitude. He goes, yeah, negative thinking leads to heightened stress. I think it does, but I, I actually think we sort of need a bit of stress, don't we, as people? Putting yourself under a bit of pressure isn't that a bad thing. I think there's a balance, but yeah, I concur. I think there's a balance. Look, we're in sales and we have to chase and some of it's uncomfy and some of it's not easy. 
it gets less uncomfortable the more you do it, though, doesn't it? Of course it does. The more experience you get, you stop caring. If a candidate's unsuccessful, the clients go, Mike, Mike, and this would be some person that had like quarter million quid a year. Mike, would you mind telling them, please? Yeah. Uh, yeah, fine. Yeah. But there's parts of our game that are unpleasant, but there's parts of yeah. lots of games. Imagine being a bloody doctor, telling people, I'm really sorry, but you're, you're going to cark it, mate. That's harder. Of course it is. Uh, well, imagine being a policeman knocking on the door telling someone that their, their son has died. Yeah. That's hard. Absolutely. So Absolutely. here's one. And this um, is a is a is a book in its own right. I've had it on my shelf for ages, not read it yet. I'll get it in a minute. Uh is mindfulness. Right. Now I know you're bang into a bit of that, aren't you? I try to meditate. I probably meditate two days a week. And do you know what's good? I'm gonna tell you something now and you're gonna laugh. On the days I meditate, I perform better than I do on the days I don't. And of. But yet, actually, I don't meditate every day. And it only takes 10 minutes. That's mad, isn't it? <laughs> but I know on the days I, if it, well, if I get up in the morning, jump on the bike, do 45 minutes on the bike, then just go meditate, just have 10 minutes. I know I will be a different class salesman, recruitment consultant, businessman on that day than on the days when I don't. But some days the day just runs away from you, you're messing about with the dogs. The missus has gone out like today. One of the dogs has gone in, found the toilet roll packet and ripped an entire pack of toilet rolls into tiny shreds in the living room. I bet the dog yeah. loved that. Oh, she's had a great time as a little whisper with that. She was just sort of sat there. Literally, it was like a huge pile of just ripped up toilet roll. She was, she was probably quite happy. Thought you would be she happy. She thought it was brilliant. Yeah, she thought it was brilliant. But then I've had to clear it up and then I've had to get the dog the food and then da 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 delivery's coming. All of a sudden it's half eight and then I've got the meeting in the morning. Before I know, I've not meditated. But actually that discipline, that grit, that makes a big difference. And mindfulness, that just that little walking away from your own head whew, makes a big difference. I agree. That, on, on, I think you're reading Kindle, I'm reading the book. On page 87, they talk about the desensitization, the systematic desensitization of fear. What do you make of that? Well, you're now I've written here, Price is the expert on this. Oh, thanks, Jim. Because obviously you're into fighting arts. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I can give examples of stuff that's systemically desensitizing to fear. You know, when you first start your sales career and you make your first few cold calls, it's frightening. I'm not frightened of doing it now. Don't care. Yes. Well, well, it's interesting. So they talk about a lot um, uh, when you're boxing, particularly because boxing is the most painful bit. But it's not painful at all. It's just your brain actually getting hit in the face doesn't hurt at all. So one of our uh, listeners, Paul Paul O'Sullivan, he's fighting in CRM fight night, and I talked to him about it. Go on, Paul. Yeah, fair play to the guy. But actually, what they say is it's a conditioned response. Yes. So actually, getting hit is a conditioned response. And after a while, you get hit a million times. It's just conditioned. It doesn't hurt you because it doesn't actually hurt. It's the shock. Yeah, it's shocking. It's shocking getting hit in the face. It's shocking is what it is. But that's what sort of what they're talking about here is systematic desensitization. Um, and she says, because it's a lady quotes this, to overcome this, you have to develop an awareness of your fear. You have to start noticing fear in your body. Very true. I think it's very true, as you say, for salespeople, because what's interesting is I'm dealing with a candidate at the minute. I think he's been, I don't know, nine, ten years in the same job, something like that. And um, I can sense fear in him. 
about final interview. Now, I'm not saying you sound scared because what's the point? <laughs> if there was ever going to cement a, a, you know, a, a fear-based objection, that's it. And I'm listening thinking, you're scared. But actually, very skilled campaigner, you know, a very good salesman, no doubt about it. Yeah. But he's, he's got this fear of interviews. And if you actually sat down with him and, you know, on a psychiatrist's table, he said, listen, it's just the same as telling you'd be fine. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because he's, he's, he's not used to it. You, you know, imagine doing a bungee jump. First time you do one, I bet it's frightening. I bet it's really frightening. I bet if you're a bungee jump instructor, if such a thing exists, and you've done 100 of them, I bet you just don't care in the slightest. And the, and the bungee jump wasn't different, number one to 100, was it? It was all the same experience. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I turned up on my golf lesson the other day and he says, tell me about your week of, your week of golf. And he always asks me when I get there. And I said, uh, yeah, it was all right. He said, let's talk about your week of practice. When did you practice this week? So I practiced on Tuesday night. I was here using your, your Trackman studio. He said, great. He said, tell me about how did you practice? And I said, uh, I did three back-to-back um, combine tests, which is like this test. And he went, great. So you haven't just stood there and smashed golf balls at the screen. No. What he talks about all the time is you can't practice by hitting golf balls at the range. He said, actually, you need to practice under pressure all the time. Because he said, that's the game. The game is under pressure. You want to shoot a nice score. The moment you start shooting a nice score, you're under pressure. Your mind's putting you under pressure. What are you going to do? Oh, can I go back to the track man and just hit a few balls? No. So you've got to play under pressure. And I think that what he's doing with me, the other week I was doing a test and I was about to break my best score on the Trackman test. And he went downstairs into the clubhouse and got four or five people to watch me. He just put me under loads of pressure. Because actually, nice. you, you're desensitizing that pressure, stress, fear response, aren't you? The more you play under pressure, the more you play. Under, and I was like, you bastard. And there was like five people stood in the room all watching with their arms folded. Come on then. Come on, what happened then? But <laughs> I didn't hit it. I, I bottled it. <laughs> that I got nervous. You were just stood in the range with some guys that were stood there going, God, I can't believe I was stood here watching this fella. They didn't care about you, did they? But that desensitization to the pressure, the stress, sooner or later people do become desensitized. And that's a very powerful thing. That ability to know I can do hard stuff, whether it's frightening stuff, tough stuff, dangerous stuff. And I like that. I think that's a really interesting thing. Then we get on to part two of the book, don't we? Well, uh, Ferocity, is that in part two? Oh, no. Well, chapter six, The Habit of Ferocity. What did you make of this? The Habit of Ferocity. This is the ability to immediately and automatically rise to any challenge. Whenever peak performers encounter life difficulty, they instinctively lean in. I do think that's, I do think that's probably pretty true, actually. You know, top, top, top people tend to react positively to challenges, don't they? They rise, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they're just up. They rise hard, rather think, than collapse. And you think, fair enough, fair enough is what you think. Yeah, here we go. Another big battle. Oh, yeah, another recession. We'll be all right. If the market collapsed tomorrow, me and you will be all right. We'll just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Been here before. Let's have it. It's just, it's just a challenge, isn't it? It's just a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas I think, what, as I said earlier, I think what will be fascinating is how a lot of people do react. And then that's the end of chapter six, and we're on to part two, which is about learning. And I thought, this is going to be a bit boring, and then actually I've really enjoyed it. And I wrote a couple of quotes. These are uh, two of my favourite personal quotes. Learners are earners and readers are leaders. <laughs> That's properly American thing to write down, isn't it? But it's so true. You, you can't not have it, can you? Uh, yeah, I agree. All the best people you meet as well. All the best salespeople I meet. 
are learned, not necessarily from a formal education at university, but they're just, they're just into it. They learn. Correct. I mean, our, our audience are so, they're the choir, aren't they? We're preaching to the choir, as they say. Yes. The people that listen to this show are already into learning stuff. I, I have a personal belief, and it's an incredibly empowering belief, I think. It's one of the most empowering beliefs I have, which is I can learn anything. Yeah, good belief. And I and, and it's a brilliant belief. And it go, just, as I was reading it, I was thinking, do you know what? How lucky is that to believe that? Yeah, yeah, true. I I truly believe that. I truly believe that if there was something I wanted to learn, I can learn it, which is nuts. But actually, it's very powerful. I agree. Yeah, and has stood me in a lot of good stead. And then he talks about. Um, I love his his little chapter on the return on investment on reading. What did you make of that? I mean, it was a little bit of a sales pitch for, for read my books. Is that the impossible ingredients bit? Where's that? It, there's a chapter called ROI on reading. I'm not quite sure what page it's on. Oh, yeah, here we are. Chapter nine. You just missed out on chapter eight. I underlined something. Yeah, it must have bored me. Yes. Well, it may not be surprising. It's devastating to anyone interested in mastering the art of learning. I wrote down. It, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, I'm not actually into reading at all. You know, I put this post up. Nah, can't bother with it. I put this post today on LinkedIn about because I'm going on holiday next week. Hopefully, touch wood, they don't catch COVID or anything. And uh, so I'm, I'm not a film person, as you know, Johnny. I haven't watched many films at all. Not in a snobbery way. I just don't watch them. So I thought, has anybody got any film suggestions? Loads of comments on LinkedIn. One person who shall remain uh, unnamed, she's Adshar, said, why don't you read a book? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. But point being is, you know, why do I read books? Just to get better at the job, actually. Because you're not a fiction reader at all, are you? No, not anyway. Not in any way. Yeah, I actually believe that we can learn more from fiction than we can from non-fiction. But point being is there's a big return on investment. You know, certainly reading all these books, even the bad ones, has definitely been a good thing. He basically creates an ROI argument, notably that if you listen to, uh, for example, if you read a blog, it's normally taken the author about two hours, three hours worth of work to write that blog post. He says, if you read a book, you're effectively looking at two or three years of somebody's life. And his point being is the amount of information and reading and learning and research that it takes to put together a book like this one that this guy's written or Thinking Fast and Slow like Daniel Kahneman has written. He said that as a book, as opposed to a blog post or a TED talk, he said what you're effectively looking at are several years of an extremely intelligent person's life. That was his argument. Yeah, I mean, they might be intelligent. We've read plenty of books, Johnny, that are pretty poor. Yeah, but that's what I was just talking to Alex about this. I think one of the challenges we've had with a lot of the books on the show is we read a lot of books we've covered. This is a very different book to the books we cover in as much as Stephen Kotler is a real author and a real thinker and a well-respected author and thinker who, who researches. A lot of the others are just sales guys that have a decent career at a massive company. Yeah, because sales guys who've written lead magnets for their sales training business or like the one that we've got coming up, I've just looked at it. I think it's going to be rubbish and it might not even make it on the show. It looks like some sales guy who's moved around a lot of jobs has then written a book so that he can use it as part of his CV so he's never out of work. Now, I might be wrong when we get <laughs> when we get into it, but that's what it looks like. Was he going to come on the show before you mentioned that? Yeah, he might still. Um, and then the, the other quote I really like in this chapter on reading is he talks about being the idiot. Oh, just on that page, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I loved that. I, I know a lad who works, he's, he's family actually. Um, he's a young lad 
Uh, he's a cousin of Jillian's, my wife, and he has this thing and a good mate of mine knows him. And we both have commented on what a charming facet it is of his personality is how comfortable he is with what he doesn't know and how inquisitive he is about knowing it. So let's say you were at dinner and we, he, he spent, there was a period of time where he had a job up in Harrogate. So we spent a lot of time in my house and we'd talk about stuff and he'd say, all right, Bitcoin, what's Bitcoin? And you'd start explaining it. And then he, then he basically, he'd get you, if he, he'd just basically get you to bloody teach him about it until he'd completely drained you. And he does it in an incredibly charming, very pleasant way. And he just, he's quite happy being the idiot, but by being that idiot, he's actually enormously switched on and bright. And I did like that. I thought that as a comment, being the idiot, being comfortable to say, sorry, I just don't know anything about that. I'd love to know about that. Tell me about that. As a way of learning, I, I, I just thought, yeah, you're bang right. And then, he, and then we're into chapter 11, talking about the skill. What do you reckon on this one? He talks a bit about Tim Ferriss and the, t- uh, and the Tim Ferriss experiment. So this is obviously, uh, Johnny's just spoken about it. So one of the things I'm doing at the minute is jiu-jitsu, which is similar to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's not the same. So Tim Ferriss, five days to learn the martial art and a trip into a ring to fight world champions to test the results. I've got, I haven't watched it. I've got to watch it because I reckon if he's done it for five days and I've done it for four years, something like that, a bit longer, I don't know, around that, I reckon I could nail him in a fight. Let's get Tim Ferriss on the show. Tim Ferriss bit big time to come on uh, Book Club, I reckon. No, it, that's a belief thing from you, that Johnny. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But he did He did also actually play a live gig with Foreigner behind a drum kit when he'd never picked up a set of sticks before. Was he any good at it? He got away with it. Did he, right? Fair enough. You know, he's never going to be, what do you call him, the late Taylor Hawkins, uh, rest his soul. But, he learned enough to play a song with a live, well-respected rock band with punters paying 100 quid a ticket and get away with it. It's worth watching that there was some really, really interesting ones on that whole Tim Ferriss experiment thing uh, on accelerated learning. Fair enough. But he does use Ferriss as a big example, doesn't he? Well, that's what the chapter's based on. Yeah. And then he talks about chapter 13, emotional intelligence. Other people matter. I think this is one of the skills, if you could teach anybody, is is a skill that all sellers, all the good sellers possess. And I say, if you could teach it, they're not sure how teachable a skill it is. I think the Samaritans is a good training ground for it. Empathy. Well, it's most intelligent empathy, isn't it? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But a lot of people talk about EQ. I think it's very important. I don't think many people actually have it. I think the good sellers have it. Of course they do. I wonder how much... So how much EQ does, what's his name? Elon Musk. How much EQ does he have? He'll have shitloads. I reckon. He'll have people who work for him, who adore him, mm. who will think he is the best boss on the planet. He will. He, there'll be people that work for him that work 22 hours a day and thank him for it. There'll be guys sleeping under desks for him. You can't say he doesn't have EQ. I'm not saying it was a question. It wasn't a, a negative. But what he does have, and what he does have, though, imagine being an engineer 15 years ago, working for Elon Musk, saying, we're going to build electric cars. You're going to be up for that, aren't you? 
Possibly, somehow. And he's quite charismatic and likeable and he's and he's driving at it. Da, 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 da. So he's got a combination of massive transformative purpose at an organisational level, combined with the fact he's probably, if you got to know him, an incredibly exciting guy to be around. Probably. And actually, he's probably just got away with people. Why else would you stand for it? They say here, researchers break EQ into four areas, self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. Do you remember years ago, we read a book called Love is the Killer App? Yeah. Loved that book. Yeah. And that was about relationship management, that book. Yeah. I thought that book helped my um, EQ level bucket loads, actually. Loads. At a personal level with my friends, actually, as much as anything else. That's interesting. A superb book. It, well, because... We but um, he just broke down uh, how to really get in and build a relationship. He talked about friendship, relevant empathy, and realness in that book. So we did, uh, and I do think that now when I'm when I meet somebody, you know, not on a name names of, of, of distant family members, but sometimes I meet people and I go, "Am I being, if I can't get on with them, I think, am I being friendly? Yeah, am I being relevant? No, I'm not being relevant." I'm not being relevant because you're into some stuff that I'm not. And then I'm not being empathetic of, the, of where you're at. So, like, you might have, you know, you might have something going in your background. And I do find that if I have that framework in my mind at a personal level, you can, I can engage with pretty much anybody now. Nice. That's nice. I like that. If you're not connecting with somebody, I think, what's going on here? What's going yes, on? Yes, I think that's cool. I like that. It's a good book. We, I don't know if we've covered it, but Friendship relevance, empathy, and realness. That, I think, using that as a framework, you could sit yourself in any room with anybody and, and you get pretty close, I think, to get pretty close to them, really. And that is about relationship management. That's a good component of relationship. If I was to take those four components, break them down, uh, relationship management, I'd just read that book, actually. Fair play. That, that, I like that. And then we're on to chapter 14, The Shortest Path to Superman. And he starts sort of kind of rubbishing, in a way, the 10,000 hours argument. Do you know, I'm trying to find chapter 14, but I can remember underlining that bit. <laughs> right, what he's basically saying is actually, in, in certain areas, you do need your 10,000 hours. Apparently in music, you do. You know, if, you, if you're going to be a world-class musician, you've got to get your 10,000 hours, hard shit, tough luck. But what's it, it's, what is interesting about that whole 10,000 hours, particularly with your musicians, Mike, is he talks a lot about match quality, which is the fit between skills and interest. That's good, yeah. Uh, and that whole concept of, I love what I do, is the fastest route to peak performance. Now, I'll tell you, I know kids who are musicians. Uh, my daughter went to Cheatham School of Music. Most of them are all living in London. I saw a few of them the other Friday night. I was out in London with my daughter. We all went to the pub after we went to the theatre, da 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 and something that stunned me, and this was really interesting, there are kids who were, a year and a half ago, world-class musicians. They were world-class. One in particular, she was a cellist. She'd taken a year out after Chet's. She'd gone to Berlin to study under this famous cello teacher. Incredibly brilliant. What's she doing now? No idea. Studying law. Why? Studying law. Hasn't picked up the cello for a year. Because she's been at it since she was four. And actually, there was a gap between she stopped loving what she did. Just blew, she'd blown a gasket with it. And that, I found that fascinating. And she's not the only one of that group, of that year group, 
I could show you five or six who've just blown a gasket the moment they left that environment, which is an outrageously elite musical environment. You know, they practice eight hours a day. Nobody cares where the kids are in the sixth form as long as they're practicing. Nobody turns up to lessons. It's nuts. It's nuts. They, they, all they do is play music. But what's amazing is how many of them have blown a gasket because actually the moment it's become their choice, they've realized, hold on a minute, I was doing this because that's just kind of what I did because I was talented at it, but actually I don't really love it. Mm-hmm. I can believe that completely. But you're right about the shortest path to superhuman because the whole Tim Ferriss thing, you know, blow, blows that 10,000 hours thing out of the water, really, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. And that match quality leads to much faster, higher learning rates is what he's saying in the book. I can believe that. Yeah. And what he also says is because of that, it creates, loving it creates flow and flow creates a halving in the learning time. And hence, you don't need the 10,000 hours. What he's saying is if you're absolutely in love with it, actually, you don't need to do 10,000 hours. Being totally in love with what you're doing, wildly in love with it, he's saying, actually, you'll cut that learning time enormously because you'll live, eat and breathe it. He says, when flow is the reward, learning shifts to something done automatically out of habit. I thought that was a really interesting concept, that whole concept of actually loving it negating the 10,000 hours. Who knows? Well, one thing, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't like this book. We'll come on to that, I guess, at some point in another show. It's all right. It is super well-researched and his science behind the book is excellent. Oh yeah. He's a proper writer, this guy. Mm-hmm. He's a, he's a proper author of non-fiction texts. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Whether it's a book that's going to change my life. I don't know. There's a few subtle things that, uh, that will in the fullness of time, I think, make a difference. But it, it's not like reading Tony Robbins, where it's full of practical bang, 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 bang. Well, it reinforces and explains a lot of stuff you already know, is what it actually does. Yes, it does. And then we're on to part three, creativity. Do salespeople need creativity? We should have done this book in three parts, because of three parts to it. Is there not a fourth? Um, I don't know. Okay. So do salespeople need to be creative? Um... Well, look at that deal I've just signed with that that company to be the the European recruiter for them. That was quite creative, really. We'd never done it before. They'd never heard of it before. Yep. A bit out of the box. You even made up the legal documents. That was very creative. Creative legal document construction. Yeah, it just shows you don't need 10,000 hours, do you? Law. Come on, they signed them. I signed up rapidly. Yeah, we've got an agreement. So, listeners, what Johnny is referring to is the fact I, I, I did all the legals <laughs> for this thing that nobody's ever done before. Yeah, without consulting a solicitor. Yeah, the water tie, I've no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. That nobody's gonna wriggle out of that. The four C's creativity, critical thinking, collaboration, and cooperation. Um you know, it's interesting, isn't it? But like you're trying to define creativity in a chapter of a book, it's almost impossible, isn't it? Well, he's talking about real creativity. You know, John Lennon, Paul McCartney writing something on a I don't know if you've watched the, the, the you hate the Beatles, but if you watch the if you've got Disney Plus and you watch Get Back it's fascinating no, I never watched it. watching them actually write something together on film without them realising they're really being filmed. That's creativity. Writing songs, that, that, being artistic. I don't know. I think writing a song's only as creative as that deal I struck up with that company. John Lennon couldn't have thought of that. Do you? Well, <laughs> 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 <Isn't> it? <laughs> that is the best quote that has ever come on this show 
John Lennon couldn't have done that. Alex is going to have to put that in a LinkedIn post, isn't he? That's content, Alex. <laughs> John Lennon couldn't have come up with that contract I came up with with that client. Brilliant. No, but he wrote some pretty good songs. He'd have said, you know something, Michael, I'm not that interested in this. That's what he'd have said. Well, I think his songs are rubbish. That's what I'd have said to him. <laughs> but that's creativity. What's fascinating about what they're saying in this book here is, he says creatives are 34% happier. That's fascinating, isn't it? And do you know what's weird is I've sort of got out of the habit of making music, sitting in my little studio, making music. I'm always happy when I'm making music, writing songs, doing creative shit. He's creative though. He's a writer. Are creatives 34% happier? I doubt that. That's what his research has shown, that creatives are 34% happy. People that do creative stuff. Yeah, but do you really buy that? Really? Really buy that? Or is that just a stat that suits the book? Is it the fact that creative people are more likely to engage in a survey? Well, it's probably more likely that creative people who aren't poor are 34% happier. Yes. Good call. Creative people who are in a socioeconomically safe place are probably 34% happier than normal people who are... Sam, with a panoramic view of the Swedish snow-covered mountains, right? Yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, I'm really happy, actually. That's because I'm creative. You know, I'm sure if, if I'm an architect and I've got autonomy over my work to be as creative as I wish, and I'm earning over 75 grand, I bet that person is probably 34% happier than most people. I bet if I'm a bus driver who's an incredibly creative person who's struggling to make ends meet and sits and writes his novel on a night in a moleskin book with a shit biro, am I that much happier? No, I'm, uh, I'm engaged, I'm living for my art. But actually, no, it's just life's a struggle. And they say, you know, all great art comes from suffering. You were in London last week with loads of creatives. You know a load of musicians. How happy are they? Well, I bet some are happier than others, and I bet it's a sensible cross-section of society. Yes, absolutely. Let's get it right. We don't know the, the ins and outs of Taylor Hawkins's death, but it doesn't look good. It doesn't look like he was an overwhelmingly happy person. So who knows? So he talks about hacking creativity. Yes. Which is interesting. So he talks about good mood. Good moods lead to more creativity, gratitude, mindfulness, exercise. Be in a good mood, be mindful, do some exercise. I, I like this broadening your horizons, literally. Oh, what do you mean? So what he's basically saying is, well, I'll tell you something that's really interesting, Mike, is when we had that office in Pinnacle, it had an enormous visual vista, didn't it? Yes. I found that just for me personally, an absolutely incredibly brilliant place to work. That was so good for my head. Didn't make any difference to me at all. Whereas me, that visual endless vista, which it was, it's nigh on endless, wasn't it? It's as good a view as you're going to get in, in Leeds, 100%. Yeah, you could see into Lancashire from the office. Yeah. And you could see yeah, you yeah. could see Lancashire, Blackburn, you could see the runway at the airport, you could see for miles from that office. What he's saying is he literally says broadening your horizons makes you more creative, makes you more productive. I'm more productive now. But you you always said, I remember when we first started the business, there was an office that we looked at that had no windows. You were like, this'll do. Yeah. And I was like, Pricey, no way am I working in a room with no windows. You'd have been quite happily sat there now. Yeah. But that's what it's about. <laughs> it's about personal, it's just about personal preference, that, isn't it? And what works for you? 
Mm. What works for different individuals? What makes you happy? You need the silence of nobody disturbing you. I need the, the visual vista to, to think. Then he talks about uh, non-time, and he starts going on about getting up at 4am, and he lost me a bit then. Yeah, I'm just not in, You know I'm not into that. No. No, I'm not into that. I read all these posts on LinkedIn. I got up at four o'clock and I meditated and then I made, then I cut down a green tree plant and made some green tree and party. Just whatever. Yada, yada. Why don't you go out the night before to the pub, have a crack with your mates and get up a bit later? Yeah. Well, that's absolutely. personal preference though, isn't it? Um, and then he talks about uh, having a few beers makes you creative. Yes. You know, let's get it right. All the greatest songs ever written were all written on loads of drugs. All the best music ever made was made on boatloads of drugs. All the best art ever made was made on boatloads of drugs. All the best poetry, loads of opium. That just kind of makes people creative, doesn't it? That altered state takes people into a different place. Right, next time I want to write a new contract for a client, then I'll go out and buy some crap. Mm, yeah. Mm. And then he talks about uh, this MacGyver method. Uh, yeah, ask your subconscious to come up with a result. All very good. And then we're on to... We're on to chapter 17, Johnny, but you know what I'm going to say? You're on a hard stop, Mike. Yeah, and we're always going to do a third part. I'll tell you what I, I think about this book. I, I whinged about it a bit last week, but I do like it. I whinged about it a bit because it's not a manual, and I like a manual. Yeah. But actually, it provides a lot of explanation around why successful people are successful, really, I think. Somebody should create a Haynes manual for high performance. Wouldn't work. Why? Because I just don't think... The closest thing to that is Tony Robbins. That's the nearest you can get. No, but you know, like a proper Haynes manual. Mm, but the, the problem is, it doesn't. Whoever writes that won't have empathy for the reader's situation because it's impossible to have that. Can you not create like a systems diagram for performance? Maybe you're the man to write it, Johnny. No, definitely not. Michael, enjoy your hard stop. We will see you or hear you or you will see us and hear us next time, same time next week, where we will do the final part of Art of the Impossible. Goodbye and thank you. Goodbye.